0: Thank you, brother. Let's pray one more time. Daily, momentary necessity and need of the help of the Spirit of God. Father, O oh Lord, who, who truly is sufficient for these things to open your eternal word and, and to teach them? But we know that you have given us your Holy Spirit for this very purpose. So, Father, I pray and ask for his enabling, his unction, his... His work within our hearts and souls. And in this particular passage, Father, may we be stirred up by way of reminder, be stirred up in our hearts and souls to to truly be devoted to prayer, to be devoted to communion with you, to be interceding on behalf of one another. Lord, I pray that your word would examine us, would equip us today, Father, and we ask that you would bless it to your glory and to our good in the precious, eternal name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's always amazing for me, incredible for me, to just contemplate, think about, As I've talked about in several sermons, just looking back at the creation account, God spoke first. He revealed it at his creation and to his creatures, both words and this glorious means of of communication that we now share And we know from the scriptures and from even basic observation of the creation around us, we see the demonstration of his power that was a result of his words, of his commands. And he has spoken to us in a very powerful way, in a most revelatory manner, as we know from and through his Son, In Hebrews it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the world. We also understand from Psalm 19 that his word, the voice of God, His commands, his truths that he's given to us, they contain within them restoring power, wisdom-giving power to the simple, bringing great joy to the heart of those who hear and receive it. It enlightens the eyes, it endures forever, and it is righteous altogether. God's word to us reveals the heart of his being, of his goodness, of his holiness, of his love, of his eternality. His word is eternally glorious. However, for us, for the creature, because of our sin and in being in in a fallen state in our heart, our words, our communication is not always the same. Apart from Christ especially, we we hear the Son speaking the Logos word when he talks about the heart of man and what his words are like, what his mouth only speaks of, where his words originate from. We know in Matthew 12, in talking to his disciples and even talking to the Pharisees here, he says, starting in verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, Or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. And the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Apart from Christ and without the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, removing our heart of stone, And giving a heart of flesh, making it alive, spiritually alive, new, sensitive to the Spirit and the Word of God, our words will continue to reflect the desires of our deceitful and wicked heart. And from a wicked heart is there issued forth words that are truly deceitful, oppressive, destructive, vain, flattering, foolish, immoral, careless, and boastful. And Jesus gives us this very powerful warning for a purpose in telling us every careless word will be taken into account and addressed at the day of judgment, as well as every good word. And Paul has been telling those in the church of Colossae and for all of us present today, for those who are in Christ, who have been raised up with Christ, who have been regenerated by the Spirit of God and sealed for that day of redemption— who have experientially encountered the Lord's work of grace in that transforming work of our hearts, that we should be continuously undergoing that sanctifying work of our expression, of our speech, of our words, of our conversations, and yes, of our prayers. Paul concludes this paradigmatic section of our, of our positional reality in Christ and an admonition, and, and, and this includes and impacts is the strong admonition and exhortations that we've looked at in detail, that we as new creatures, realizing and believing in our positional unity in Christ, is to be now lived out in submitting to and embracing the Lord's supremacy through our, our functional and now renewed unity in his church, where we find great harmony and peace by his great work of grace in our families, between wives and husbands, in submission and in love, between parents and children in obedience and training up in righteousness, and last time even proper service between slaves and masters or employees and employers And with this reality in mind, remembering this, Paul now issues some very powerful closing admonitions that focus in on our words, our speaking, how we verbalize the treasures of our hearts, not just in communication, but also in our prayer. And in concluding his examination and exhortation to us as new creatures in Christ... Paul intentionally focuses on our words, our speech, because this is something that both the church and especially the world will look at carefully as it evaluates, as it scrutinizes, as it judges the truth that is lived by those who profess Christ. And if we are honest, next next to the motivations of our heart, the desires and the attitudes of our heart, our speech— Controlling our tongues is probably the most difficult aspect for any believer to control. How we guide our tongues, how we master our tongues, both in our words, in conversation, communication, and even in our prayers. And Paul breaks this down in very intentional, logical manner as expected in the Word of God. And I've outlined this in three sections overall title the treasure in our hearts expressed first in prayer we see this in verse 2 the treasure of our hearts expressed in proclamation verses 3 and 4 and the treasure in our hearts expressed in preservation so we have prayer proclamation and in preservation and for us to begin this, we really need to to remember and understand Paul's imperative back in chapter three: sixteen that we are to let the word of Christ, the communication from God to us, richly dwell within us. It must take up a domain within us, not one ear out the other. It must build actually a residence within our hearts because it is The Logos word of Christ, it should have supreme right to both prescribe and direct the heart of a new man. He's bought us. He owns us. He is now transforming us. And when the word of Christ, the scriptures are dwelling within and influencing our heart's devotion, not only does our soul prosper, but it will express itself for in treasures of truth that we find in Christ, in his word, our speech, our our communication, even our prayers are going to take on a whole new dimension. And this is why the Word of God and prayer belong together so intimately close, as we just looked at in Sunday school and in the intercession of Christ. He is the Word, and he prayed. How tightly coupled those things are, how necessary it is for us. And prayer is for us, I would say, the most important speaking, the most important speech that we Can utter, for we are talking to the triune God of heaven. But prayer for the believer is a newfound source of great strength, and in our communion, in communicating, sharing our needs that God, yes, He already knows of, but to be able to share these needs in a fellowship with the Lord, and of course, with the Spirit of God enabling us, it is too, it is also. Our best line of defense when coupled with the word against our unseen enemies, against our remaining sin, against the enemies without that we can see and those that we cannot see. But before we get into Colossians 4 verse 2, I want to look at the parallel passage much like we looked at last week in Ephesians 6. If you want to turn there and hold your finger there in Ephesians 6, I just want to read verse 18 today to begin with. Paul says there to the church at Ephesus, exhorting them in the same truth, he says, with all prayer and petition at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Pretty encompassing, isn't it? But thinking about this, how does the sinner express his confession of guilt and sin and cry out for forgiveness and salvation? It begins with that prayer of faith, that prayer of seeking the Lord, asking for his forgiveness, confessing sins, turning from his sin. That prayer of faith begins it all. And for the believer, how is it that we bring our ongoing confession of sin and seeking the merciful sympathy and help from our eternal high priest for our forgiveness? How do we or how are we to express our heartfelt thanksgiving for the daily, momentary need of grace? To, to request that comfort in our distress, to, to request that strength of Christ in the midst of our affliction to persevere. And even in the privilege of expressing our great thanks. And the concerns and needs for brothers and sisters in Christ, is it not all through the means of our communication with the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit? For the saved and sanctified believer, praying from a pure heart to the heavenly throne of grace, in congruence with the Word and the Spirit of Christ, and in the name of Christ, and for the glory of God, this is the utmost form of devotion and expression in our lives as believers. So Paul dives right into the most important, most urgent reminder and aspect of prayer. This is point one. The treasure of our hearts expressed in prayer. He says, devote yourselves to prayer. Be devoted to it. This is not a harsh imperative to it. It is a necessity. He, Paul himself understands this very well, and especially for every believer to be devoted to, to strive to be continuously persevering in prayer, finding time necessary to intercede with the Father. And this is being consistent with the view to the privilege of this great expression to and with God for who he is and the means to obtain all that we truly need for others and ourselves. This is the believer's personal exercise of faith to be lived out each day by that fulfilled work of Christ who has has granted us that access to the Father of light and life. And with this great privilege, it truly behooves us to establish this as a priority in our lives and even to be creative And the means of forming new holy habits of prayer. Notice Paul doesn't say, okay, like I said in Sunday school, 4 a.m., at least an hour, noon, at least an hour, 5 o'clock, at least an hour prayer. He, He doesn't give that directive because it would only become a ritual, a rote for us. It would become meaningless. We'd become pharisaical in it. But he's talking, he's taking all in mind of what he's been writing to us, in the previous 26 verses of who we are in Christ, of living in the reality of this great privilege that we have, this undeserved privilege that we have in Christ, to commit ourselves to be in prayer to the Father, to pray to Christ in the power of the Spirit. And he's given us even greater help through the Word of Christ to assist us and equip our praying. But we... We must establish in our hearts an intentional desire and a plan to do this. Practically, look at your life and schedule and realize honestly before the Lord, when am I mo- the most awake? When can I give you the optimum time where my attention is, is, is on you, is, is grabbed by you and your truth and your word? prioritize my communion? Is it morning? Is it midday? Is it evening? Is it all three? But consider it this way. that Ask yourself, will you make time to engage your mind, soul, and strength with the lover of your soul? I think our devotion to prayer directly reflects our devotion and our love for Christ, does it not? And what a better way to come humbly to know your creator and your savior and your eternal king to understand his will and his ways, to know the fulfillment, the reality of his promises being enacted in your life, coming to true fruition in your life. Paul's use of prosuche tells us that this is an earnest time of prayer. I know we all have those moments of of quick prayer Of spontaneous prayer. Nothing wrong with those. But here he's talking about seeking an earnest time where Christ himself, as we're going to see, Lord willing, he sought out those times of private intimacy to be with the Father, to find that closet, if you will. That was his priority. And Jesus gives reference to this earnestness when he talks about the parable of the unrighteous judge who did not fear man or fear God but because this widow was constantly pursuing him for legal protection Christ tells the disciples we need to be like this widow, we need to pray and not lose heart we need to persevere, be intentional until there's an answer until there's an answer there is found, there can be found with this humble heart humbling devotion to prayer, a greater reverential fear and love for and toward the Lord God. So many prayers within the church and the evangelical world are glib, lifeless, superficial. And the attitude that we hear, I know many of you have heard, it's even on sadly on YouTube, that the concern of these prayers is nothing more that God is my great ATM in the sky And he's just waiting to grant every wish and whim that I may have and fancy before him. God, forgive us of this. But this also sounds much like what Malachi says in chapter 1, verse 6. God speaking to the Israelites, he says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. There are, we know, many devoted, earnest accounts of prayer we find in the Scripture. These are very real accounts that have come from men and women such as we are. Same sinners brought to faith by the grace of Christ who we are even of the God-man Jesus Christ, prayers that exemplify a struggle, a striving, striving, a wrestling with God, if you will, where there is in the verbal expressions of these deep, persistent, courageous heart struggles a real, bold grappling with the Lord. Do we want to walk away limping like Jacob did as he wrestled with the angel of the Lord all night? Think of Hannah. Praying for a child, and not in that a, a, a selfish reason, but her mindset was even eternal. Grant me a son that he may be a priest unto the Lord. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jesus Christ himself, their intensity and devotion to prayer, to be bold and forceful under their conviction of God's word and will are, I believe, a delight to the Father. It's a delight for him in granting answers, even though it resulted in Jacob's limping, even the death of his own son, even the joy of an only child that would be handed over to serve in the temple day and night. God desires our heart to be engaged in prayer that is devoted to him. I know I've I've shared with some of you before um, about my own mom. When she was saved radically in 74, she began journaling prayers of all five of her kids. And when she went home to be with the Lord in 99, I didn't see the journals till after I was saved, a couple years after I was saved. And I remembered two instances. When I was in Houston, she was in San Antonio. And I specifically went to those journals, found the date, the Spirit of God was ministering to her in such a way that she knew exactly how to pray to keep me out of death. It it frightened me, but it gave me such great confidence in knowing that the Lord hears our prayers, and she is my testimony and example of a true prayer warrior. But this just shows the, the earnest devotion brings such a favor of God when we come to him humbly and desiring for his help and his grace. And Paul goes on to further describe this earnestness, this devotion with two specific attributes. These are subpoints A and B under the first point. And he says, keeping alert and with thanksgiving. And keeping alert in it, what he means here, and this, this is a very present, active, ongoing participle. Paul uses this word, Gregorontes, and it's not referring just to physical aspects, referring to our flesh, much like Christ's admonitions to the apostles in Gethsemane. You know, keep watching and praying that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. There is an aspect of that here, but what Paul is really after is that in our humanity, and our weakness, we will encounter these times of prayer where we must physically strive to stay awake. To keep ourselves physically alert, to keep our mind focused. It may mean, I do this, it may mean that we get up and walk around as we pray. It may mean that we read the scriptures as we pray. But what Paul is is more importantly saying here is to keep our minds engaged in our prayer, to be mentally cognizant and in tune with what we're praying about, whether it be for our own needs, for the needs of others whether you take the the church directory and pray through each member, whether you're praying for the world, for those opportunities at work, to evangelize those people at work, to be cognitively alert and focused on this. And not the least of which, as I said, that the will of God, it may be fulfilled on the earth in our lives and in our church. This is what we need to have by means of keeping alert in our prayers if you have some paper and pen with you, if you're taking good notes, I want to give you just some supporting scriptures that you can look at and study later. Acts 20, verse 31, where Paul's prayer, his own prayer for alertness. Acts twenty thirty 31. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, also talking about being alert, being sober. 1 Peter 5, 8, being on the alert because of our enemy that's prowling around. Familiar, but these reinforce our alertness and our awareness mentally in our prayers. But this verb that Paul uses here also has an aspect that speaks of vigilance and alertness that we have, as I said, about a concerted effort in keeping awake in our time of intercession. But in having mentally something prepared for to pray for, like I said, whether we're praying over Scripture For another, over the church directory, keeping a prayer journal. The key is that we'll never be devoted or keep alert in prayer if we're not specific and vigilant about it. If there's a lack of concern, then this will reveal the need for even to pray for our own hearts that the Lord would stir us up to cause us to see the great necessity with the great privilege it is to bring brothers and sisters before the throne of grace. Is there... Is there not so many needs that we run out of time? You know, we could truly spend hours and hours in prayer for all the needs that we're aware of, just in praying over Scripture for one another. Second aspect or element in our prayer is that our prayer, we are to pray with thanksgiving. And I like the way the NASB adds here an attitude of, It's a good expression of what our heart attitude should be in this. In or with thanksgiving, Eucharistia. And Paul also uses this over a different chapter, but Ephesians 5, verse 20, he says, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Paul always consistently expresses the need for being thankful Just just in Colossians, there's five times here he mentions being thankful for salvation, for our growth in Christ, for, for our fellowship with Christ and in his church, and for the privilege to serve one another. And praying with thanksgiving really instills and weaves a heart humility in our attitude and our words as we do pray for one another for ourselves because when we're, we're humbly and deeply conscious of the enormous and eternal blessings we've received from the Lord, will we not, should, should we not express this thanksgiving to him and to one another? Paul says we're to give thanks in everything, for even this is God's will for us in Christ Jesus, to be thankful in heart and in our words of prayer to one another. And remember, this is coming from an apostle who's in prison, who's been in prison for the very same Christ that he is praying to, proclaiming. And with so much in mind and heart to be thankful for, again, I want to give you a few scriptures just to take with you and use in your own prayer time as a means of expressing your thanks to God. Psalm 75, verse 1, for God's name and his presence. Acts 27:35 for God's provision in the midst of great uncertainty. Romans 6:17 for God's great pardon of our sin. 1 Corinthians 15:57 for our Lord's victory for us. Second Corinthians 2 Corinthians 2:14 God's triumph for us in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1:20 God's promises to us in Christ. And, of course, Romans 8, 28, for God's eternal purpose for us found in Christ. So take these, meditate on these, make them your own, make them your prayer, devotion, prayer time. And Paul continues now in verses 3 and 4, but he turns his exhortation really into a request for himself and for his fellow workers there. Those that were ministering both to him and to the other churches in the Lycus Valley, to Laodicea and others, and he said, you know, brothers and sisters, while you're in your time of prayer, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I've also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Those two verses always amaze me, coming from the Apostle Paul, that, that he himself would request, not just in this letter, but in many letters about this. But this is point two. The treasure in our hearts expressed in proclamation. Do our hearts express themselves in a manner of gospel proclamation? Is the treasure in our hearts of such of Christ and his truth and power that our words are gospel-oriented, our proclamation. And Paul's exhorting us to express this in public proclamation and in our prayer to God, but expressing the truth of the gospel to those in the world around us. And this is a very specific manner. Do You see in all of his prayers how gospel-centric it is. He's not being proud here, and he's not being shy either. He's expressing his need to be remembered in prayer and the needs of his fellow workers because he continues to bear in mind the commission that he's been given directly by Jesus Christ and their commission and our commission as ambassadors that God will open up the doors for the word, the word of the gospel, the great mystery of Christ that's now been revealed. And back in the parallel account, verse 19 of Ephesians chapter 6, he says the same thing in another way to the church at Ephesus, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. I almost sense sometimes he may have had a, maybe a fearful tendency, just uh, don't know what to say, I don't know if I should say anything, but pray to just to open my mouth, to make known with boldness the mystery of God. Paul's focus and, and and our focus should be as co-commissioners of the gospel is that God would too both give us that boldness to open our mouth, but open a door for the message of truth. And we we see throughout Scripture and the early writings even that there's this picture of a door, an open door. It denotes this provision of opportunity, a, a means to approach and access and In the context, it is the opening of the word or the message of the gospel or an opening of the door for this opportunity of the gospel. Paul often wrote of the opportunity, a wide door for service and doors open for him at Corinth. And again, his request was not of of some selfish release from imprisonment or or comfort for himself. He knew that his calling was not some fair-weather religion, but one of vitality, one that is very precious and real to him. And it was centered on the preaching and the proclamation of Christ, his cross and his power to save. And fundamentally, he, he had in mind these doors of divine opportunity to be open so that he could preach Christ, meaning his, his ongoing request for God's prerogative and directive to be fulfilled in revealing this great mystery of Christ. And of which, he says, for which I've also been imprisoned. It was a direct result of Paul's preaching the gospel, of preaching this mystery of Christ, that he is now imprisoned. And this glorious privilege, and even within the confinement of this prison cell, even though he did have some liberty being under Roman guard, he still prayed that there would even be in this confinement doors of opportunity for the gospel. He knew no boundaries. He didn't see his imprisonment as a time to relax and say, oh, well, I've, I'm good now. I can take, take a few days off and rest. I'll let let you guys continue doing the work. No, he, I was thinking he probably had in mind something like, Lord, set the guards in a rotation so I have a new person to speak the gospel to or, or send in another centurion who has authority over these guys, these men, that I can preach the gospel to. And it's also in this this proclamation that Paul gets very, very specific, even about the way he ought to speak. He says in verse 4, please pray, Please, please pray that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Paul's desire is to make known, to reveal clearly, to manifest the mystery of Christ and his saving power to everyone, both Jew and Gentile and And realize this again, this is the apostle Paul. He is asking not only for doors to be open, even while in a prison cell, but that in his words of proclamation of the Gospel of Christ, Lord, help me that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak this truth in in each what we 've called and talked about before each divine occurrence, we don 't know specifically what person what what dealing, what problem, what what personality we're going to be facing each day, whether at work or in the store or our neighbors. But do we pray like this? Do we pray for the clarity of the gospel? And what I say comes across very clear in the proclamation of Christ. Be, being diligent in speaking forth a proclamation is good and a great thing, but if it's not clear, if it's done in a bad way, and Paul does not mean that you have to have some great eloquence in in speaking and a smoothness of speech. No, he's talking about if the content of the mystery, which is Christ himself, if this is not clear, is not explaining the fullness of the message, or if it's done in fear of the proclamation or embarrassment or even neglect of the person of Christ, or even if it's done in a proud or condescending manner to the person, then we're going to bring reproach both upon Christ and his message. And these are matters we also must be in prayer about, not just on Saturday nights as as brothers and sisters go out, not every opportunity we have at work or cross the fence with the neighbors, every aspect to be wise in our approach and proclamation of this life-changing truth. For we're under the same commission that Paul was. And just thinking about this further, I know many of you you're probably all familiar about all the different dangerous ways of gospel expression we've heard and that we must also not only guard against but bring refute to 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 prove with truth against the false gospels. One of them is is making it only experience centered. What I mean is when only a person's feelings and a testimony are shared and there's no biblical focus on the gospel message itself about God's holiness, our sin, and the need of forgiveness, the need of repentance and faith. Another is is any proclamation that exalts the ego or brings a self-focus where Jesus is merely presented as some life coach and he can make all your problems disappear, provide you with all manner of earthly comforts and well-being. This is only man-centered. This is not Christ-centered. And not that Christ will not bring us true joy and true peace and true happiness, but that with Christ, we are also gifted with suffering for his sake and in this life. That's a promise. That's a great gift to experience. And probably the most dangerous is any proclamation that's coercive, that uses some high-pressure tactic to, to draw on emotions in order to, co- to force a commitment and ultimately a false profession of faith. There's so many like this that are easily drawn into that seeker megachurch environment that remain on this superficial plane of false conversion. Our prayer, like Paul's, is is to speak in a way in which which it is right that we should speak it, but meaning as we ought to do so, speaking with clarity in every opportunity, the knowledge of the gospel of Christ but expressing the same boldness the same grace the same mercy that has been shown to us and from this prayer and approach to the specific proclamation of the gospel Paul then turns to a more a more generic principle of Christian conduct it's a broader exhortation to the church he says so as to give credibility to what they are saying how they speak, but also in the way they act. Verse 5 and 6 is, brings us to our third point in the expressions of our heart through preservation. And Paul says, Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you know how you should respond to each person. And what I mean by the alliterative P in preservation, we're going to see in verse 6. But to begin with, we've got to look at the wisdom that we are called to exercise as a a governing means over our conduct, over our actions toward those who are outside the church, to those that are in the world. And it's that same wisdom that we saw back, if you remember, in chapter 1, verse 9, it is, of course, spiritual wisdom that we are to seek and to ask for, godly wisdom that has to do with the knowledge of God's will and enriching our daily walk. And this wisdom that Paul exhorts us to is an antithesis to the false wisdom that the, these false teachers are trying to purport in Colossae and in, in all of its emptiness that had no bearing upon their actions or, or even guidance in their words. But for the saints in Colossae, even for us here, but especially in Colossae, they faced direct opposition, being called atheists for not worshipping at the local temple and cultural images. They were harassed as unpatriotic because they didn't burn incense to the emperor's image. And they were labeled immoral because they usually met behind closed doors where the world didn't know what was going on. But if, if they and, and if we profess Christ and proclaim a true biblical gospel, and yet our actions and our lives out, out, lived outside the church are in a foolish or reckless manner, if we respond wickedly or revile in response to any form of persecution, we bring a sad and very painful, harmful reproach upon Christ in his name. But we also belittle his gospel and its true power to transform, making a mockery of faith in Christ. And as those in Christ, we are, according to Paul's command, we're both to be cautious and tactful. We are to avoid the needless antagonizing or alienating of our pagan neighbors. Our goal is the saving of their souls by the power of Christ, and this has to be reflected both in our words and through our actions, we are to be, as, as Paul says in his letter to the church at Corinth in, in chapter 2 Corinthians 2, a very li- familiar passage, that we are to be an aroma, a, a living, vital fragrance of Christ's life and power, both in our words and our actions. He says, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ, And manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and to those among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak cry in Christ in the sight of God. If we have this attitude and a life reflecting the very fragrance of Christ himself, we are to make the most of every opportunity, which, which is a very interesting term that Paul uses here. It it has the idea of redeeming the time of, of, of making most of the time. But the verb redeeming here, exagora, zomenoi, is, is actually a marketing term. It means to, to buy out, to purchase completely each and every opportunity. And along with kairos, purchase every opportunity in a particular time. kind of goes with that thinking of divine appointments that we pray for for the gospel for every opportunity being both a life witness and a word witness to Christ. And is not Christ to us the great prize of that hidden treasure and the great pearl of great price that we read of in Matthew 13? Is he not worth reflecting and testifying in our actions and our lifestyle as well as our words? Because remember, as I know you know, but remember, the world is watching And they watch very closely. So do our children. So we should also pray. And using another godly example of Moses, who prayed that the Lord would teach us to number our days, that we may present to the Lord a heart of wisdom. May we have a heart of wisdom that guides our actions, that makes the most of every opportunity before us. For there truly is little time given to us. And if our hearts are redeemed and our lives reflect it, we are back to what, what we began with, our words and our speech reflecting that redeemed heart. Paul knew the brother of the Lord, James, and we know what James wrote to us about this, his letter, about the church in Jerusalem and those who had been spread abroad. He wrote about the tongue, that if we do not stumble in what we say, we are able to bridle to manage the whole body as well our our tongues can defile our own body and the body of Christ they can set on fire our whole course of life think about that some very dangerous ill spoken badly timed words can set a whole course for your life our tongues can defile our whole body we bless our Lord and Father and we curse men, James says, but these things ought not to be this way. Paul says our speech, our words, and he is implying our manner of speaking should always be with grace or gracious, meaning that even our private conversations, as well as our public proclamations, whether in a group or privately with our neighbor, when speaking to a peer or to someone who is an authority over us, even when talking about the boss when he isn't around, our speech should always manifest grace, a graciousness that is guided by wisdom and and, and always here always the use of pantote, meaning it should be with a habitual character about it, not changing from one person or situation. But there should be a habitual character about our words that are guided by wisdom, no matter where we are or who we're talking to. And if this is true within us, then how will we respond Respond when confronted, when, whether we're, the confrontation be true or false? How will we respond when we are persecuted? Will we revile or we, with grace, receive that persecution but issue forth grace and mercy and wisdom to another? The working of God's effective, powerful grace in our hearts is our necessary spiritual means because this directly impacts our language to where it will have with it an edifying tone and content. It is, in essence, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. Even to our enemies, even to our persecutors, this graciousness carries with it an implication of, of charm, of pleasantness, of winsomeness, and as Paul also describes, as to be seasoned with salt. And this is where I get the preserving aspect of this, this section. And what it means here in verse 6 is referring to the believer as being the salt of the earth. We know that from Matthew 5.13, that our language Our speaking, our conversations do not promote corruption. It is preserving. It is wholesome. It is edifying that that words that are interesting and and judiciously chosen. Great scriptural expansion of this is Ephesians 4.29. Paul says there, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, According to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Wholesome, edifying, timely, gracious words bearing truth in a loving manner to those who will hear to their benefit, whether brother or whether foe. And so closely coupled to the seasoned words, we see how necessary wisdom through the grace work of God in the heart is necessary. So that, as Paul says, to each person, as Paul references in verse 6, there is an appropriateness, not just to the time, but to the person themselves. See how dependent we are daily, momentary, of the grace of God and wisdom of God in all manner of life and speech. So to bring this back to prayer and praying for ourselves and for others, hear what David says in his own prayer from Psalm 141. Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. May my prayer be counted as incense before you. The lifting of my hands is the evening offering. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watchful over the door of my lips. Paul concludes this exhortatory section with some powerful admonitions to us that we need to take to heart and to life to persist, to be devoted in prayer for ourselves, for the needs of the body, for the elders, for the deacons, for the church as a whole, for the salvation of the lost that we come into contact every day to intercede, and as we intercede on behalf of one another, may, may we truly continue to sing out with joy, Maranatha, O Lord, come, to have a mindset and a heart and an attitude toward anticipating that glorious manifestation. And may, may truly our hearts and lives express our thanksgiving to God and the, the Father and the Son for his mercy and grace and acting on behalf of ourselves in salvation and restoring and re- redeeming our communion with him and with one another. May the grace and the wisdom we have received and continue to seek out and receive from God be manifested in our lives, in our actions, in our speaking, in our proclamation of the gospel, and may we, he be exalted. May Christ be exalted that we may have an answer to those who inquire about the hope that is in us. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for the instruction, the the power of your word, of these admonitions and exhortations to us. Father, we confess to you that we are in need of grace for reading these, believing these, and making them real in our lives. Father, I pray that truly our, our words, words to one another, words to family, to coworkers, to enemies, to persecutors, would be guided by your wisdom to be seasoned with salt, to be preserving and pointing and directing to the glory of God, of God and, and found in Jesus Christ and the good news of his gospel. Lord, inscribe these truths upon our heart. Make them a vital reality in our lives that you may be honored and praised, and that your kingdom, Lord, may be expanded upon this earth as we daily cry out, Lord, Maranatha, oh, come, Lord, and come quickly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.